Graham, how are you? Good to see you. Hi, Cliff. I'm in good shape. How are you? I'm good. Well, I have a lot to talk to you about. We, we haven't talked in a while, and we've had some very interesting people on the planet that, on the planet, on the program talking about our planet. And yeah. <clears throat> one of the most interesting fellows is a guy I'm sure you know about, which is Dr. A.V. Loeb of the Harvard University, a, uh, uh, the astronomer who has... He wrote this book, uh, Extraterrestrial, about uh, the Umama object. The Umama object, yeah. The, the object that he has reclassified as a monument, yeah, uh, yeah. which is quite quite fascinating. But one of the things he's he very, taught... He's very daring, he's very daring to, to step out there and, and uh, you know, put his reputation on the line saying that. But good good for him. We need, the, we need minds like that at work it's, on problems. He's wonderful. And the other thing, and I don't know if you know this or not, he refused to sign a Pentagon paper, a non-disclosure paper, uh, if he finds something artificial or uh, alien. And this is unusual because most of these heavy hitters like him sign an NDA specifying they will not reveal certain images, certain data yeah. to the general public. He's all about being transparent, which is very unusual. We need we need more scientists like that. Uh, there's no there's no excuse for for lack of transparency. Um, we're all the human race and the human public, and we all contribute to the costs of these kind of researches and adventures. And it's ridiculous that the bureaucrats sitting in capital cities should should make decisions on on behalf of the rest of us we all have a right to know yeah uh, there's way there's way too much bureaucratic control in the world today uh, it's getting it's getting out of hand and and bureaucrats forget that they 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 serve us they don't own us they don't rule us they don't have any right to control us one of the things that i found was quite insightful is that he has recalibrated the satellite array uh, to be able to spot what he calls these alien or ET monuments, which is what the Obama, Obama the uh, object that he found uh, previous to that. So one of the things he does is he reclassifies obser uh, observing other planets, and he, he calls them technical signatures. This can be carbon in the atmosphere. It can be uh, these monuments, evidence of uh, civilizations, lights, of course, the new reclassification of UAPs, unidentified aerial phenomenon. But when mm -hmm. it comes to our planet, what are the technical signatures of the pre-Diluvian people that you think? In other words, well, see, this is this this is uh, this is an issue which actually crosses both of these both of these domains. Whether mm -hmm. we're looking out into outer space and trying to identify civilizations out there or whether we're looking back in time into the past of life on earth and trying to identify civilizations i think the mistake we're making is is that we're constantly trying to look for ourselves we're constantly like trying to look for a civilization like ours we're making assumptions about what a civilization would need in order to be a civilization. And those assumptions are rooted and grounded in what our own civilization is and was and has become. Uh, and we find it very difficult to think outside the box, to think of, of other types of civilization that might, might do technology in a completely different way, that might be, might be much less concerned with issues of mechanical advantage that we're in, interested in, uh, that might, uh, 
that might be tapping into the powers of the mind much more effectively than our own mechanistic uh, civilization is doing. So, so the first mistake is, is assuming that something like us is out there and looking for it. Uh, I think we should, we should not draw any boundaries around what a civilization is or could be. We shouldn't say, well, if we, you know, if we don't find carbon in the atmosphere, uh, then that then there's no sign of uh, no sign of a civilization we have to be we have to be much more open-minded than that what would you say that's if we true. were to that's look true of the past that's sorry cliff that's true of the past in in looking for a civilization of the past uh in in terms of the human past there 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 are two issues firstly actually many more than two issues but let's name two of them firstly we we cannot know that a civilization of the past would be exactly like ours or would go down the same technological route uh, as 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 ours would do. Uh, and secondly, the geological processes on planet Earth have a way of wiping things clean relatively quickly. I mean, just because I mean, I'm living in, you know, in England, it's an old country. Uh, but but frankly speaking, we have hardly anything left even from the Tudor period, you know, which is which is um, 500 years ago or less. 400, 400 years ago, we've hardly anything left from that period, uh, never mind from periods in the much more distant past, the much more remote past, when we're left with just sort of scraps and tiny pieces on which to draw our assumptions. And the same goes for, for interstellar space, those vast distances and those vast time spans involved. Anything we're, we're seeing, you know, that's, that's, that's a thousand light years away, it's taken a thousand years for that light to reach us. So, you know, it, 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 it's an enormously complicated problem, but it starts with the assumption of what we're looking for. And all I want to say is we should not assume that what we're going to find is going to be us. We're going to find something very different, which may do things in a very different way, so different that it would completely blow our minds and we couldn't even get to grips with its technology. We couldn't even recognize it as a technology. That's my thinking as well, is that uh, for all we know, these pre-Diluvian people develop uh, unique science and physics. Uh, I mean, that we're able to probably use looks like earth energies. You write a great deal about places like Baalbek, Egypt, and Peru, uh, these yeah. megalithic stones. Uh, I mean, what are the signatures other than the cut marks that would take us to a science that we're not familiar with? What would be for you beyond just the basics of the stone monuments would you say well, is almost, almost by definition a, a science that we're not familiar with would would not <laughs> we would not have any markers for it for, for for what it might be i mean let's let's say that let's say that our lost civilization or our aliens thousands of light years away are mm -hmm. masters of telepathy and telekinesis uh how are we going to find the physical evidence for that uh, either in the past or in distant interstellar space um, it's a, it's a, it's a very difficult, it's a very challenging problem to, 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 to find that physical evidence. So when I look at the, when I look at the past, uh, I am not, uh, in a desperate search for technology like ours. What I am in a search for is knowledge. Do I find evidence from the past of a level of knowledge possessed by some human beings? which was far in advance of the knowledge that our historians and archaeologists tell us was available at that time. That's what I regard as a, 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 an anomaly or a puzzle uh, which, which requires further investigation. That's why, for example, I'm interested in ancient maps that have survived and been copied and recopied down the ages, which include 
very accurate relative longitudes. Longitude is a technological problem. Solving, solving longitude requires an accurate chronometer that can keep accurate time at sea. And our civilization didn't do that until the second half of the 18th century. So when we find maps that go back to the 15th or 14th century, which we know were copied from even older source maps now lost, which include precise relative longitudes, then we have a problem. And the problem gets even bigger when when uh, those maps show the world as it looked during the last ice age. And it gets and it gets uh, and it gets bigger still when those maps show continents such as Antarctica, which our civilization didn't discover until the 19th century. Uh, all of these things raise raise questions in my mind. I don't I don't impose a, a notion of what uh, a lost civilization might have been. I don't want to do that. I want to let the evidence speak to me. And the evidence says to me, there is a big hole in our understanding of the past. There are too many anomalies to be dismissed as, as mere coincidence. Uh, we're looking at the legacy of knowledge and wisdom that's been passed down over a very long period of time. Yeah, you're referring to the Perry Reese map, which is the one I know well, about. That's, yeah, that's just one of a category of maps. Yeah. Perry, Reese, Perry Reese map is extremely, uh, it's extremely interesting, drawn by a Turkish admiral in 1513. We're fortunate that his own, ha- he made handwritten notes on the map. Mm-hmm. Not, not all of the map has survived. Actually, only a, a fragment of it has survived. It was originally a world map, but the fragment that survives shows the west coast of Africa and the east coast of the uh, Americas. And this map was drawn in 1513, uh, and that uh, was just 21 years uh, after Columbus famously sailed the ocean blue in 1492. Uh, <laughs> and, 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 yeah. and the map. The map is uh, the map has a number of anomalous features. One is it um, it arguably shows the Antarctic coastline down at the tip of South America, and another is that it shows the Bimini Road uh, on a huge island in the place where the island of Bimini now now sits. Uh, and the, the last time that structure was was above water, it's now 20 feet underwater. The last time it was above water was more than 7,000 years ago, and it was above water for thousands of years before that. So, you know, P- Perry Reese, the Antarctica aspect of Perry Reese swings into focus when we realize that there are dozens of other maps from that period which also show Antarctica. Uh, and yet you can go to maps created with the best technology in the early 19th century, such as the Pinkerton world map, and you'll find only a hole where Antarctica is. There's no land mass shown there at all because we didn't discover it until 1820. And those were honest cartographers. And yet there it is on much older maps, copied from even older source maps in the right place of the right scale and size, many details correct. It's a very, it's a very puzzling thing. And I think these puzzles, I think, I think research should be anomaly driven. We should be, we should be driven by things that aren't explained by the current theory. My, one of the problems I have with archaeology is that they want to make everything fit into the current theory. Right. Here's the current theory. We want to make everything fit with it. If it doesn't fit, we might actually not even speak about it. You know, this is how archaeology unfortunately works, that they, they'll dismiss whole topics the way the, the way the notion of Clovis first in the peopling of the Americas, that the Clovis culture was the first culture, the way that that had a stranglehold on American archaeology for decades, uh, even though there was masses of evidence which showed that Clovis was definitely not first. Um, I, I think that rather than trying to force uh, 
puzzling and difficult evidence to fit into the straitjacket of existing theory, we should be willing to reconsider existing theory uh, much more than, than we are at present. In your last book, you uh, outlined and, and uh, showed us a great deal of the Amazon area. Mm. And you actually found something that is has actually come up recently more with some other people who were down where you were, which is this astronomical uh, aligned uh, kind of a mini Stonehenge. Uh, yeah. That was amazing to see that. But that's another signature right there. I mean, we were so used to Stonehenge. And there's circles around the world uh, in different places. But when they're coming up as, uh, and you're revealing them, isn't that something we should be looking a little closer at? Oh, I, I, I think the Amazon is one of those huge holes in our, in our knowledge of the past. And, and that's why I devoted a big chunk of my, my, my last book, which was America Before, that was published in 2019. I, I devoted a big chunk of that to the, right. to the Amazon. Um, when I look at the at the issue of a of a lost civilization, I have to ask myself where are archaeologists looking today, and where are they not looking? And by and large, where archaeologists are looking today are the places in which people live today. Um, they are not they are not looking at places which which may be very difficult today, but where um, extremely nurturing and and positive environments thousands of years ago. Uh, and, and, uh, the Sahara Desert is one of those, one of those areas, green during the Ice Age, virtually uninhabitable today. The Amazon is one of those areas. It's suddenly, I mean, it's a very old rainforest, but it's some, something very strange started to happen to it about 12,000 years ago when it started to be effectively gardened and managed by human beings. Uh, and we see this in the, in, in, in the hyperdominance of trees that produce food products such as Brazil nut trees, for example. Um, the, 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 this this rainforest was was turned into a a huge resource for humanity, uh, and this began more than more than twelve thousand years ago. Uh, and while modern archaeology has tended to be captivated by the notion that the the Amazon is a is an untamed rainforest, in fact, it's largely a man made environment. Um, and yeah. we have to go back. We have to go back to the beginnings of that of that man-made environment more than 12,000 years ago and consider what the Amazon looked like then. And it's just a, one of those tragic facts that the clearances of the Amazon that are now taking place because of the greed and stupidity of the international community. Let me address that point for a moment when I say the greed and stupidity of the international community. I think everybody would agree that the Amazon rainforest is a precious resource for all of humanity. It's a precious resource. And at the same time, we should all also be aware that there is an enormous amount of poverty in a country like Brazil. And it's that poverty which is driving ordinary Brazilians, poverty-stricken Brazilians, to migrate out into the rainforest and to cut down the rainforest and to plant soybean farms there. Soybeans are then grown to feed cattle uh, so that we can all eat hamburgers. This is an incredibly bad idea. If the international community really valued the Amazon, what we should be doing is to collecting together the resources to compensate the peoples of the Amazonian countries, to compensate them adequately and fully so that it's not in their interests to cut down the forest anymore. So right. that actually it makes economic sense for them to keep the forest alive. And because the forest is a, is a benefit to all of humanity, it's up to all of humanity to get together and make sure that forest is preserved. And that's not going to be done by blaming the poor. 
That's going to be done by giving the poor an investment in keeping those forests alive. And we have the resources to do that. We just lack the will and the, uh, and, and, and the, the dynamic drive uh, in order to make something like that happen. We can spend billions, trillions of dollars on all of the most horrific forms of warfare and on weapons of weapons of mass destruction and accumulating gigantic arsenals to threaten one another with. But we seem incapable as an international community of just putting together the funds to compensate the peoples of the Amazon to carry on gardening that rainforest rather than destroying it. Yeah, I think we're ignorant of, of the importance of uh, the Amazon. I think someone said that the Amazon uh, represents the lungs of our planet. Yeah, you know, and produces uh, our oxygen. And bio, bio, biodiversity cliff as well. I mean, you know, a home of incredible biodiversity. The destruction of the Amazon, we lose a, an enormous percentage of the biodiversity on this planet. And that's a very dangerous place to get ourselves into. It's mm -hmm. just just madness that this is being allowed to happen. And then tantalizingly, the, these clearances, which should never be happening, well, what they have done is that they've revealed that there are enormous structures in the Amazon. They've revealed that explorers' stories of giant cities in the Amazon, which were treated as lies for hundreds of years, mm -hmm. uh, that those stories turn out to be true, that there were enormous cities in the Amazon, that the peoples of the Amazon were not just simple hunter-gatherers. They were, they were gardening an enormous resource uh, and, and creating a very viable lifestyle out of that enormous resource, mm -hmm. which was destroyed by the Western invasion of the Amazon and largely by bringing in diseases like smallpox to which there was no, to which there was no local resistance. So this was a thriving ecosystem, uh, which supported millions of people and it could be, and it could be again, but we have to make, we have to make the right choices. So there's these very large geoglyphs is the best way to call them, a bit like the Nazca lines, except except that they're earthworks they have very they have you know raised banks uh, on an enormous scale hundreds hundreds and hundreds of square of, of square meters are, are 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 covered by these by these structures they're often cardinally aligned perfectly aligned to true north south east and west they have solstitial and equinoctial alignments as well they have incredible geometry there were there were master geometers working in the amazon thousands of years ago and we're just beginning to become aware of this. And what does this mean for our story of our own past? We haven't taken the Amazon story into account in the story of civilization. We've just ignored it until now, until those clearances force us to reckon with the fact that there were people living in that rainforest thousands of years ago who were true scientists. Look at the look at the creation of, of um, medicines like uh, ayahuasca, the ayahuasca brew. And the and the the number of the the, the the fact that it has to be made from two different plants, neither of which is psychoactive on its own, you know, mm. to, to to actually so that's science to put those to put those together. Curare, you know, in, in eleven different ingredients, that's science. The Amazon was a home of science thousands of years ago, and we've just ignored it completely until today. And you know, we don't need to do any more clearances of the rainforest. We have the lidar technology now to see what's under the rainforest. And again, very little is being spent on that. A few archaeologists, and I've been in touch with them, are working in the Brazilian state of Acre uh, with minimal LIDAR, but they don't have the funding because all the big money in archaeology goes to other things. Mm -hmm. I would say putting money into a serious archaeological investigation of the Amazon, starting with uh, 
complete LIDAR survey of the most interesting regions would be a really good place to begin. Because what LIDAR shows us is what is under the canopy without yeah. actually without actually destroying the canopy. And I think that the discoveries in the Amazon over the coming 20 years are going to radically change our understanding of the past of humanity. Same goes for the Sahara Desert. Same goes for the continental shelves that were all submerged at the end of the last ice age. Where I again, think, yeah, I think. Yeah, I think LIDAR is is overwhelming the archaeological community because it reveals so much. Uh, yeah. This, uh, as an example, in Mexico, they found 500 what they call platforms and very, very old pre-Maya, uh, pre-classic yeah. Maya foundations that they don't, they cannot uh, uh, account for. There's no That's record right. of them, and they there is a type of structure that is. A real question mark. It's just amazing. So yeah, yeah. So 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 this is why I have a problem with with archaeologists who take the line that they've got the past all sorted out. You know that it's just a matter of dotting the i's and crossing the t's and filling in the details. That they've basically got the big. They haven't got the big picture at all. They've got a tiny fraction of the picture. Mm-hmm. They're drawing archaeologists are drawing conclusions about the past of humanity while discounting enormous areas that were once heavily populated, like the Amazon, like the Sahara Desert, like the continental shelves. We can't be drawing conclusions about our past uh, when we haven't done the work. And at the moment, archaeology has not done the work. Mm. I want to talk to you about uh, some work that Dr. Mark Carlotto has been doing. Uh, we, we go back to Charles Hapgood's theory on Earth crustal displacement. And yeah. his work is showing uh, that when you line up uh, very old uh, buildings, be it in Mexico at Chichen Itza, uh, the Great Pyramid of Giza, South America, Cusco, uh, and you align it with uh, the current North Pole, uh, you get one bit of data. But if you actually uh, look at it from a displacement theory, it's significantly older. These places are very, very old. Is this valid for you? Does this feel like it's something that's going to be valid well, or what? I think that I think that the whole earth crust displacement theory, which which Charles Hapgood was the first major advocate of, right. um, definitely definitely deserves uh, a second look. Uh, it, it, it deserves a much a much closer look when it's had. Of course, I paid a lot of attention to that theory in Fingerprints of the Gods back in yeah. 1995 when Fingerprints was published. Um, that uh, the the evidence of a global cataclysm somewhere around twelve and a half thousand years ago uh, was then and is still today, in my view, utterly overwhelming. And the question is, the question only is what what caused that cataclysm? Now, in recent years, there has been a growing body of evidence which suggests that implicated in the cataclysm was a fragmenting giant comet, uh, and and we were hit by a swarm of of comet fragments. Uh, comet impact and earth crust displacement, it turns out, are not mutually exclusive. Um, mm. There's an excellent Italian scientist, a former former admiral called Flavio Barbiero. Uh, he, he's written an article about, about this for my website. He's also written a book about why Antarctica could be the, the home of a, of a lost civilization. And it's entirely about earth crust displacement, but he's bringing a whole lot of new science to Charles Hapgood's idea because the problem with Charles Hapgood's idea was what 
is the buildup of the irregular buildup of ice at the poles, is that enough to set the crust in motion? And in Barbiero's calculations, it isn't. But if you get a, if you get an impact, a hefty impact on the surface of the planet that hits the planet a glancing blow, not a direct impact, but a glancing blow that adds to the torque and spin on the planet, then you could indeed get, get earth crust displacement as a result of, of comet impact. So I think, um, the the evidence in favor of uh, earth crust displacement much derided though it has been over the last 20 years has grown uh, rather than rather than shrunk and i think we're we're looking at a very complicated series of events that preceded and took place during the geological episode known as the younger dryas between 12800 and 11600 years ago uh, and uh, we cannot rule out that a significant shifts of the Earth's crust was part of that. Maybe not the whole story, but part of it. Uh, mm-hmm. I think the comet, the comet impact evidence is incredibly strong. It's the strongest evidence we have right now for a global cataclysm in the 12,500 years ago window. It's very powerful evidence. And although it has its critics, it is not going to be refuted. This this evidence for, for what is called the Younger Dryas impact hypothesis is I'm very 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 familiar with it, and it is powerful, compelling, and overwhelming evidence. Uh, but the fact that there was a comet impact does not rule out that a side effect of that was a displacement of the crust of the Earth as well. And mm-hmm. Flavio Barbiero's work uh, really addresses itself to that point. It's still so it's not a mainstream, uh, it's still not a, a mainstream topic at all because it happened oh, so oh, long ago. You want to get the main, you want to get the mainstream to run a mile, just mention earth crust displacement to them. The <laughs> yeah, that's true. They're, they're, I mean, they'll, they'll t- take off at high speed showing you their heels. Um, the, I mean, to put it simply, the notion is that the crust of the earth, the lithosphere is to be compared with something like the, thick uh, skin of an orange or rather the relatively thin skin of an orange by comparison with the meat of an orange and that from from time to time while the meat stays in one place the skin can revolve around the central core of the orange and that's the notion with earth crust displacement uh that Mm. that uh forces are are unleashed which allow the crust of the earth to slip taking land that was at a pole at the north pole or the south pole and shifting it rather rapidly into much warmer latitudes and conversely taking land that was in warmer latitudes and shifting it very rapidly into much colder latitudes. It's a very attractive theory in many ways. It explains a lot, but it also has serious problems. And I think the combination of that theory with uh, the comet impact work that is now being done may help to solve those problems. Mm. I hear from Mark, Mark wrote a book called Before Atlantis and he has recalculated the dates for places like Chichen Itza to 80,000 years ago. Uh, I think Peru is 100,000 years for its inception date. And of course, Giza is around the same time when you yeah, realign these. Yeah. I just wouldn't, I just wouldn't rush to go, to go that far back. Um, I, I wouldn't rush to do it. Well, first of all, if we're going to, if we're going to say that Chichen Itza is 80,000 years old, we, we must say that only the idea of Chichen Itza is 80,000 years old because the structures that stand at Chichen Itza are certainly not 80,000 years old. No way yeah. on 
God's earth, are they 80,000 years old? Uh, the dating of those structures uh, is uh, is relatively relatively secure, and and you're not going to find structures that are much older than 1,200 years old or less. So so uh, what we can say is that perhaps the idea of Chichen Itza, perhaps it was a sacred site for thousands of years before that. Perhaps there were earlier structures that stood there. Yeah. Uh, if so, if so, those who advocate that should be should do their best to bring forward evidence of the existence of those earlier structures. Perhaps there was a sacred cavern. Uh, You and I are both familiar with the Pyramid of the Sun at Teotihuacan. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the Pyramid of the Sun at Teotihuacan stands atop of a natural cave system, which has been elaborated and modeled by human beings. Now, that the that the orientation of that cave system is is such that it defines the orientation of the pyramid of the sun clearly the cave system preceded the construction of the pyramid of the sun and the modification of the cave system into a sort of clover leaf shape directly beneath the apex of the pyramid of the sun uh, is all the work of is all the work of human beings so so the question is was the idea for teotihuacan present long before the pyramids as we now see them in their present incarnation uh, were built. And you could ask that same question about Chichen Itza. Um, but uh, uh, I, I think trying to push it back 80,000 years is, uh, is, is a bridge too far. I'd love to see the evidence that would persuade me of that, um, but I don't see it. I, 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 find, I find that even arguing for, for a, a civilization that was destroyed 12,000 years ago is, um, is a pretty heavy lift with the archaeological establishment. <laughs> And we need to, you know, we need to, we need to get the different sides in this debate, try, try to find some common ground, uh, and, and getting to, getting to some sensible, sensible conclusions. So I've got nothing against the 80,000 years. I just don't see evidence for it. Okay. Well, hey, look, you yourself have written that, I mean, you've dove off of Japan's, uh, ocean and went to Yanaguni. I think you went to 200 dives at Yanaguni, Cliff. What? 200. 200 dives at Yonaguni I've done. 200? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. my god. I, 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 I do, I do take my research quite seriously. I didn't know that, but, but you've also, uh, seven years of scuba diving trying to, you know, in, in doing the background research for, from, for my book, uh, Underworld, which looks I didn't know you did. That's a tremendous, that's yeah, a hell of a lot of diving. I love scuba diving. It's a, it's a wonder, just as well that I do. It's a wonderful thing to do. That's wow. when you discover that the ancients were correct when they said the sea is a god, mm-hmm. uh, or rather a goddess. Uh, the sea is, um, can be incredibly loving and gentle and nurturing and kind, and it can also be ferocious and devastatingly powerful. And the one thing you learn as a diver is never fight the sea. Wow. Always go, always go where the sea wants to take you. <laughs> no, I, I, were you were you dragging on the same scale? <laughs> no, you're not going to tell me that Santa, your wife, drove dove with you 200 times. Yes, Santa oh and I do everything. My God. Santa did all those dives, and and she did all the underwater photography on those on those dives. Well, that's amazing. That is amazing. Yeah, it was great. It was a great period of our period of period of our lives. I, the reason I just say this, Yonaguni, uh, which which I'm quite certain is a man-made structure. The complication comes because it's carved out of natural bedrock. It's right. cut from, there are bits of it that are actually built where megaliths are placed one on top of another. And when you do 200 dives, you find those bits. But uh, most of it is cut from the natural rock. Uh, and that's the argument that is used by skeptics to say the whole thing is natural. But look, the Great Sphinx 
of Giza is carved from natural rock as well. But nobody's arguing that it's natural. The carving was done by human beings, and it's the same mm -hmm. at, at Yonaguni. Diving at Yonaguni can be like diving in a river flowing at high speed. The currents there are so strong. Really? Uh, and then sometimes they'll drop to nothing in a few seconds, and you're in still, beautiful, clear water. It's a magical, majestic place. I'm very privileged to have had the opportunity to spend so much time there. I, I'm bringing up uh, Yonaguni and also Dwarka because you actually – I think you dove there too. Uh, Dived at Dwarka, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Up, in, up in Gujarat. Very interesting site. What, what are we missing uh, by not doing more underwater archaeology? It seems to me that this could be a real key to understanding our past. If, yeah. as you it, suggest in your books, the, the, the sea rose between four and 600 feet. That's a significant right, amount. It, it, let's, let's say 400 feet. The, 400 the, the feet. The sea level rise at the end of the ice age was 400 feet. And what are we missing? We're missing 10 million square miles of the Earth's surface that's that was above lot. water during the ice age and that's underwater now. And to put that in perspective, that's roughly Europe and China added together. So it's like telling the story of the world, but ignoring Europe and China. That's what archaeology is doing by ignoring the continental shelves. Yes, there's some marine archaeology. Yes, they go diving and look at shipwrecks. But by and large, they're not interested in diving to see if if the whole picture of our past needs to be revised, uh, as I strongly believe it does. And if, if archaeologists would listen more to what local divers and local fishermen have to say, they would realize that there are anomalous structures all over the world on these continental shelves. What was some of the dates for uh, some of the artifacts pulled out of Dwarka? Weren't they in the thousands of, uh, or at least 500 BC, something very, very yeah, remote? That, that, that. That, that's that's right. I mean, Dwarka is a sh relatively shallow dive. I don't remember needing to get deeper than about 25 or 30 feet at Dwarka. Mm -hmm. um, whereas mm -hmm. at Yonaguni, you're down you're down in the 100 and 120 foot range. Um, uh, it's a relatively shallow dive. Uh, some of the submergence may be accounted for by land subsidence rather than by sea level rise. Um, I think that more work needs to be done further out from the shore than has been done at the moment. I think that Dwarka needs to be seen in context of the Indus-Bali civilization, uh, Harappa and Mohenjo-Daro and the mysterious origins of that civilization. Uh, we're, we're missing a, a huge part of the story from, from India. The, the, all the coastlines of India, Dwarka's up in the northwest, but down in the southeast you have Mahabalipuram uh, and you have Pumpahar. You have you have the fact that India was joined joined to Sri Lanka during the Ice Age, that mm -hmm. the, the, the land mass extended south almost as far as the Maldives, uh, and there are huge traditions in India about a lost land called Kumari Kandam. Uh, in many ways, it is the Indian Atlantis, and Kumari Kandam is described very accurately as a land mass that extended south from the southern tip of India, but that was submerged uh, when the seas became angry and swallowed it up. Mm. Yeah, we, and that's a story that's found all over the world. With yeah. the, again, archaeologists are very um, dismissive of myths. Uh, but what are we to do with with the, this global tradition of a flood that we find everywhere uh, in virtually every culture all around the world, and of a few survivors who put together the the seeds that will be necessary to restore life after the after the cataclysm? Why is this story told again and again? It's not enough to dismiss it as some kind of fantasy or coincidence. Of course, the myths are the memories I, uh, our, our species has from, from, from a time when no written, written records have survived. I mean, it feels like there's a problem with Western archaeology. They don't really look at the Chinese ancient history. They don't look at 
Indian Absolutely. or Hindu history. And, yeah. and, in, and in India, they have thousands of these very, very old temples that have information in them that we just don't, it, it, we, we get trickles of this data. And, and, and something else uh, very special about India, you have a living tradition, uh, which is which is carrying down ideas from the remotest past uh, and and uh, bringing them into the into the modern world. This is where India is very different from, say, Egypt, because when you go to Egypt and you see the ruins, the majestic, magical ruins of ancient Egypt all around you, the connection to the tradition of ancient Egypt has been severed. Uh, and we are only able to access that tradition through Egyptological interpretations of oh. ancient Egyptian texts. Whereas in the case of India, uh, the, the connection has not been severed. And that's why you don't find a lot of very, very, very old temples in India, because when you have a continuous tradition, well, they continuously rebuild and renovate temples. They don't just leave them there to, you know, fade away. They keep on, they keep on redeveloping them and, and building temples on the same spot. And we see examples of that, um, in many, in many other places. We talked about Chichen Itza. You and I both know that Chichen Itza, uh, the, the Kukul Khan pyramid is built on top of another pyramid, uh, mm-hmm. and that you can, you can actually get inside and, and see that inner pyramid with it, with its inner shrine. And that, 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 the case of Cholula in Mexico, there's at least six, Pyramids built one on top of the other there. So, mm-hmm. so this is why I think it's important to hang on to the notion that, um, the antiquity of ideas is as important as the antiquity of the artifacts and architecture to which those ideas are attached. I would love to hear about your feeling on these different hominins that are popping up around the world. We have, uh, the Denisovan, which is some people think that that is those are the former Atlantinians or uh, pre-Diluvian people. We have different hominins popping up around our planet. What is going on? It's like massive panspermia on a global scale. You know, it's crazy. Well, it's, it's certainly causing us to to re, to rethink the, the story of our, our past. Santa and I were were very very privileged privileged to get to Denisova Cave in the south of Siberia. Uh, we made a massive overland journey across Russia in order in order to get there back in 2017. It is a, it is a very very special place. Um, look, uh, what's changed, and it's really all changed since 2010, when the Neanderthal genome was was fully decoded and published. That's that's when we began to get to grips with the notion that that anatomically modern humans and Neanderthals interbred. And and we now know that the majority of human populations have up to four percent of Neanderthal DNA uh, in their in their DNA. That's when we started to ask ourselves more questions about the Neanderthals. Previously, the Neanderthals had been thought to be they were stereotyped as this ignorant, savage brutes, uh, but they were interbreeding with our ancestors maybe they weren't so ignorant or savage if they were deemed acceptable and as as mates and then we find that actually the neanderthals were doing art uh, that there are cave paintings left behind by the neanderthals which are tens of thousands of years older than the cave paintings left by anatomically modern humans it's beginning to look like the neanderthals were the smart ones and that they taught they taught anatomically modern humans how to paint that skill looks like it was transferred from Neanderthals to anatomically modern humans, not the other way around. And in a sense, even talking about anatomically modern humans is unnecessary because Neanderthals survive within us. We are all Neanderthals. Then you have 
the Denisovans type they're, they're named after that cave in Siberia where a monk called Denis uh, used to meditate. That's why they're called the Denisovans. Um, and, and it turns out that they are related to Neanderthals and to anatomically modern humans. And that there was interbreeding going on between all of these groups, between anatomically modern humans, Neanderthals and Denisovans. Furthermore, the Denisovans uh, left behind artifacts uh, that seemed to be tens of thousands of years ahead of their time uh, that anatomically modern humans weren't making until 20,000 years later. Uh, so we're just at the tip of an enormous mystery uh, of uncovering the truth about our past. Um, and, and this is why I like to use the phrase stuff just keeps on getting older because it just keeps on getting older. And every time it gets older, look, we, we, we now have the earliest anatomically modern human skulls going back more than 300,000 years mm -hmm. um, from, from Morocco and certainly close to 250,000 years from, from Ethiopia. Uh, we know that Neanderthals and Denisovans were around for hundreds of thousands of years before that. These were symbolic species, just like ourselves. They were capable of doing everything that we can do. Why it's interesting that stuff just keeps on getting older is that it opens up that window wider and wider for missing elements of the human story. And I, I am convinced we are a species with amnesia mm. uh, and that this very long, this very long span of time that precedes the so-called origins of civilization, the longer it gets, the more difficult it comes to believe that civilization just began suddenly 6,000 years ago. No, it's got much, much more ancient origins than that. And those origins may not be confined entirely to anatomically modern humans at all. Hmm. Do you think that the Hindu yugas are valid at all, which takes civilization hundreds of thousands of years in the past and shows a high point and then proceeding to a low point and then resurrecting back to the high point again? Well, uh, in, in a sense, I think that investigation is for my next life. Um, <laughs> have, have, okay. I have enough to deal with in this life, persuading <laughs> the archaeological establishment that there may be a major forgotten episode in the human story about 12,000 years ago. Well, I mean, it kind uh, of goes to the fact. Let me, let me just finish this point. Yeah. What I do, what I do really value in the Indian traditions is the notion of, uh, is, is the, this cyclical notion. That, that what goes up must come down, that things, what goes around comes around, that we're right. locked in a series of cycles. And the exact number of years for those cycles, uh, in my mind, remains to be settled. I'm not against the hundreds of thousands of years. Now that we know that anatomically modern humans have been around for a quarter of a million years, there's no reason why civilization shouldn't have been around for much longer than that as well. Um, but I have to stay focused on my immediate target. And, and my immediate target is to is to keep on drilling down and presenting and presenting the evidence that something major is missing from our story and that that major something came to an end about 12,500 years ago. And when, I mean, it began, when it began is a whole other story. That's a, that's a whole other story. And I don't I don't even try to go there. I'm, I'm interested in, in showing A, that there's something major missing, that there's evidence from the past that cannot be explained in terms of our understanding of human capabilities at that time. Um, and, and, uh, and, and I can't even remember what B is. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I kind of, I kind of use the Yugas, uh, in a way to, to preface the 
thought of what did these pre-Diluvian, these pre-flood people look like? What type of modern... They like us. You think they did? Yeah, by and large. I think the, I think the, the human, the human form hasn't changed much in the last quarter of a million years. Those, the, those, the, 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 the Hood, um, fossils from Morocco are slightly more dubious, but the, the, the recent redating of the Omo fossils from Ethiopia to about 240,000 years ago is really firm. Uh, so they look like us. Okay. They look like they were, they were anatomically modern humans coexisting with them in the world where other humans who didn't look like us with big brow ridges and receding chins and, and, and enormous musculature, uh, the, the Neanderthals and the Denisovans who may also have been very big physical, physically big individuals. The Neanderthals, let's remember, had, had, um, been the masters of Europe for, for 200,000 years before anatomically modern humans showed up amongst them. So, uh, a, a little bit different, but the, the, the change of human appearance has been relatively, relatively slow, um, over, over the last 200,000. It's not changed radically. We can recognize ourselves in these fossils from quarter of a million years ago. Okay. Would it be your best hope to find a new Mayan codis, an Egyptian book of the future or some language about the past, or are you picking up bits and pieces from civilizations that have long gone like the uh, Sumerian uh, cuneiforms or whatever? I mean, what is it for you in your search? Is it a constant breadcrumb trail or what? It's a constant, it's a constant breadcrumb trail and it's trying to, and it's trying, what I'm trying to do is to provide a, a solid, reasoned, thoroughly researched alternative to the mainstream narrative. There's no point in tackling the mainstream narrative of the past if we do so in a slight or fanciful way. We have to do so in a thorough and detailed manner, uh, using their own weapons against them. And that's, that's my, that's my project is to look for those anomalies in the past and to consider what they might mean. And more and more in recent years, it's been focused on this issue of the cataclysm that occurred, uh, during the younger Dryas between 12,800 and 11,600 years ago. That was a, huge punctuation mark in the human story. That was an extinction level event that occurred in geological terms literally yesterday. And lo and behold, right at the end of the Younger Dryas, 11,600 years ago, suddenly appears all the signs of civilization. All I, archaeologists don't dispute that. Gobekli Tepe is a very civilized site uh, and it's 11,600 years old. Um, so really where I'm differing from archaeology is I'm saying I think what we're looking at is the rediscovery or the reinvention of civilization then, not that it was just invented out of whole cloth 11,600 years ago. There's a background to a site like Gobekli Tepe. You can't create a sophisticated, complex site with with megaliths weighing 20 tons and more and with perfect astronomical alignments. You can't, you can't do that without a lot of practice and experience. And we don't see the background to that practice and experience. I think the background is a lost civilization. Was Gobekli Tepe a reboot center, do you think? In other oh yeah, words- that's, that's absolutely what I think Gobekli Tepe was. And not only Gobekli Tepe, but also Karahan Tepe, which I had the privilege of going to in, uh, in November, uh, 2020. Uh, and, and, um, 
uh, and indeed have visited some, several times before. There's about a dozen sites around Gobekli Tepe, uh, which are in the process of radically rewriting human history. Uh, and and uh, archaeologists should be careful about uh, what they say about our past while all this excavation remains to be done. <laughs> yeah. Because I think those... I think those areas have got a lot to teach us, a lot to teach us about our past. And I think Gobekli Tepe in particular uh, was a kind of time capsule. If you ask me what I'm looking for, I'm, yeah, I'm also looking for the Hall of Records. And it may be that Gobekli Tepe is that Hall of Records, a place where I think that the ancients sought a number of ways to pass knowledge down to the future. Uh, a belt and braces approach. One, one archive of written documents would not be enough. You, you might not even be sure that the writing could be deciphered 10 or 12,000 years in the future. Mm -hmm. uh, what you want is multiple ways of encoding information. That's why the great myths from around the world that incorporate precise astronomical information are of great interest to me. Uh, information about a hard to observe phenomenon called the precession of the equinoxes is, is encoded in myths and traditions from, from all around the world. Um, the, the, that's one kind of hall of records. Another kind of hall of records might be a physical location where, where objects and artifacts from the past were hidden away and preserved. And Gobekli Tepe feels a bit like that um, mm -hmm. because it was so carefully hidden that it remained hidden for more than 10,000 years uh, and until uh, Klaus Schmidt of the German Archaeological Institute considered the implications of some bits of finely worked stone that were sticking out of the side of the hill, decided to excavate and found that actually they were dealing with a site that was nearly 12,000 years old. Most of Gobekli Tepe is still underground. 90% of the site is still underground. It's been surveyed with ground penetrating radar, but it hasn't been excavated. Uh, as we conclude, Graham, what, who, who were the people that built Gobekli Tepe? I, I mean, the, the, the revisionists, I mean, we get people saying that the Denisovans were the people who built and uh, were the teachers of Gobekli Tepe, but I, I don't know if we have any proof of that. Well, the, peop the people who built Gobekli Tepe, judging from the skeletal remains that have been found there, were anatomically modern humans. Um, okay. And they were hunter-gatherers. This is something else that is important to be... And this is part of the mystery of Gobekli Tepe. Because when the first stones are laid at Gobekli Tepe, Roughly um, 12,800 years ago, when the first stones, when the first stones are laid, uh, everybody there are hunter gatherers. But when the site is completed, uh, they're all agriculturalists. Sorry, I need to, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. The date that the first stones were laid at Gobekli Tepe was 11,600 years ago, the end of the Younger Dryas. Mm -hmm. The Younger Dryas begins 12,800 years ago. It ends 11,600 years ago. That's the date that Plato gives us for the submergence of Atlantis. He tells us that it was submerged 9,000 years before the visit of Solon to Egypt. That visit took place in 600 BC. So he's telling us Atlantis was submerged in 9,600 BC, 11,600 years ago. That's the same date as Gobekli Tepe. Gobekli Tepe then runs for a thousand years. At the beginning of that thousand year period, everybody there are hunter gatherers. At the end of that thousand year period, everybody there are agriculturalists. It's as though the site came first and the agriculture came second, which is the exact opposite of the model that archaeology has worked with up till now, where they say you needed to have a stable agricultural economy before you could put together a big site like Gobekli Tepe. Looked like it worked the other way around. And I think it was a Kickstarter. I think that site was used to mobilize and organize hunter-gatherers, and to put them on another path, and that path is the path that we call 
civilization. That's in the Middle East. Do we see a Gobekli Tepe uh, version in South America? Or, uh, Keep looking in the Amazon. Oh, <laughs> yeah, right. Keep looking but, in the Amazon. The, the search has just started. There's still okay. five, five and a half million square miles of, of, of land in the Amazon that's not been studied by archaeologists at all. Keep looking in the Amazon. Uh, uh, the, the, that's one of the very likely places to to find your Gobekli Tepe style. I mean, place. if if the world was uh, in such a poor shape following this uh, uh, terminating event, you would think that Gobekli Tepe is the, uh, just one of perhaps many uh, reboots. Yeah, I believe it is one of many, and and that's what world mythology attests to that there was a global civilizing endeavor. Uh, that the survivors of a global cataclysm spread out around the world uh, and tried to reinitiate civilization. Uh, mm-hmm. And this happened in different ways in every place they went to because the, 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 the local cultures that they found themselves amongst were different. So naturally, the paths diverged, but they have a common core. And that common core uh, can be found in geometry it can be found in the astronomy of these sites very sophisticated very advanced uh, knowledge and it can be found in a global spiritual system uh, which is to do with the issue of life after death and what happens to us when we die and its connection to certain kinds of monuments such as pyramids this is it, it cannot be an accident that the same essential set of ideas about the afterlife journey of the soul are found all around the world this goes back to a, a shared legacy of a teaching I believe, from the survivors of a lost civilization. Wonderful. Hey, it's been great uh, having you on the program again. 